Hey everybody, and welcome back to Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel we have Dave Kimura. Good morning. Jason Sweat. Hello. Ryan Hogan. Hi everyone. We also have a brand new uh, member of our Ruby Rogues panel, and that's Jameis Buck. Hello. Happy to be here. Do you want to give everyone a brief introduction? I know you weren't on that long ago, but yeah, just kind of tell people who you are and where you came from. Sure. Yeah, I'm Jameis Buck. I, uh, I was a member of the Rails core team way back in the day when things were first getting off the ground there. I worked at 37 Signals and then Basecamp for about nine years, and I've been freelancing for the last couple. Awesome. And we also have a special guest this week, and that's uh, Peter Bot Harkins. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me on. Do you want to give a brief introduction to uh, what you're doing these days and, and what we're talking about here? Sure. Uh, my background is I started in Rails around the 1.0 days, and then I was a Rails consultant full-time for about uh, five years or so. So I saw lots and lots of sites. And then I gave a talk at Rails Remote Conf a few months ago about Rails database corruption, where you can end up with this scenario where you load a record out of the database and you call .valid on it, and it comes back false, which should never, ever be possible. And I, I got totally hooked on it as a consultant because I just saw it randomly on projects. And then once I saw it twice, I realized like there's no such thing as a two off. So I, I investigated a bunch and I found a half a dozen ways that totally normal active record usage can lead you with corrupt data. Um, and then nowadays I run a consultancy at revenue.systems. That's a real URL. I love the new TLDs. And I help SaaS companies make more money by improving their onboarding and sales processes. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured that your database is fast, reliable, and always on. Is production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer. So go check them out. You can pick from nine databases, including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, SciLaDB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale. Automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with, with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Setup is fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com slash devchat. Um, yeah, so if, if people want to hire you for that kind of thing, I know some people work for companies that are going to need that. Do they just go to revenue.systems or email you somehow or... Yeah, you can drop me a line at peter at revenue.systems or visit revenue.system to see a little more text about that. But it's a lot of stuff about making sure that that first run experience of getting involved with a product is seamless and helps people succeed. And then also instituting a, a testing process so that everybody knows that their improvements are actually improvements and not just changes that might be good, might be bad. And I help companies sort of build and develop and own a process around that. 
Awesome. Well, let's let's dive into this uh, data corruption topic. Because um, initially, when I accepted the talk to Ruby Remote Conf, I was like, oh, he's going to talk about how the uh, database engine goes bad and messes up all my data. But no, it's how my code messes up my data, <laughs> which made me kind of laugh. Um, so yeah, um, do, do you want to kind of start us off with one example of how this goes wrong? Yeah, sure. Uh, the first one, the one that I caught that really surprised me was uh, partial writes. Um, we know them as a performance improvement. So if you've got a like a blog post and it has a headline field and a body field and an author, and you change the headline field and you call post.save, Rails is only going to run a SQL query that looks like update post and then set the headline. And it's not going to rewrite the other fields back to the database. And this is a performance improvement, and it's just generally a fairly nice feature. But there's actually a, a hidden race condition, especially if you have a validation where two fields are interdependent. Like in that blog post, maybe it's okay if the post doesn't have a headline as long as it's not published. But if the published flag is set to true, it's got to have a, a headline. If two users are editing at the same time, or really if two, where I see it all the time is if two sidekick jobs are running all the same time, because uh, a lot of folks have a daily cron job set up that throws a couple of thousand sidekick jobs in all at once, and they are sort of creating the perfect conditions for race conditions against themselves. Um, if two things do a partial right and one says, okay, I'm going to delete this headline. And one says, I'm going to set the published flag to be true. Each one of those individually has a blog post that's valid. But when those two partial writes happen, you end up with a blog post in the database that's invalid. And I saw this with coupon codes where they could either be used on the website or on the phone or expired. And if they were used on the phone on the last day, a cron job that would run to mark them as used would run at the same time as one that marked them as expired. And so like the admin database was so weird because it'd be like, yeah, there were a thousand coupons and 800 of them were used and 202 of them expired. And it's like, wait a minute, how does that not add up? That should be impossible. And there's records out of the database and the admin data uh, would just explode with 500s because it would be like, yeah, I pulled this data out and it's invalid. So boom. And I saw it once and I was like, okay, somebody logged into the production console and tinkered and then I fixed it. And like two months later we were back and we did some more work and I saw it again. And I was like, wait a minute, this was like a one-off. I fixed it. Why am I seeing it again? And then I realized it was actually a, a an ongoing issue. Yeah. So when you deal with race conditions, those, those can be tricky to track down. So, uh, it's kind of crazy. So how would you suggest, you know, other than making your sidekick jobs like uh, idempotent, how would you go about fixing that kind of issue? So for most of the race conditions, you can do a couple of things. For this one, you can actually just turn off partial rights, although generally folks don't want to do that. But it's not, you know, most of us aren't writing one megabyte records to the database. Partial rights aren't a huge win for us. And at least if you do kind of like the last person wins, you know you're writing something valid. Uh, but Rails has optimistic locking and pessimistic locking that are both pretty decent. Um, and I kind of prefer pessimistic locking because it uses the database level locking feature to be like, yeah, while I'm updating this record, 
between when I've pulled it out and saved it back, nobody else should be updating it. Peter, can you kind of explain what pessimistic locking and optimistic locking are? I don't know what those are. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so optimistic locking is uh, Rails adds a column to your table, and it's just kind of like an edit number of, uh, in the same way that old Subversion had uh, edit numbers for each commit. And so every time somebody revises it, it goes one, two, three, four. And in optimistic locking, Rails says, all right, if I load a record out of the database and I go to save it back and that number is changed, throw an exception. And so then if you end up in the race condition where like the two processes have both logged the, loaded the blog post out and one is about to delete the headline and one is about to set it to published, whichever of them goes to save, you know, one nanosecond later, we'll see that the number is different and that one will get an error. So that's optimistic locking because it's sort of uh, optimistic in the sense that it's optimized around most of the time this never ever happens. So we can just kind of do it at the Rails level. And then pessimistic locking is, well, there's a database transaction feature that says, I'm going to read off of this table and nobody else should be updating this row while I'm in the process of reading and writing it back. Yeah, that can kind of introduce its own issues, though, can it? So in your example, let's say if you have a bunch of comments and if you have a counter cache on your blog post, then if someone makes a comment while you're editing the um, uh, your blog post and if the comment touches the blog post, then that would essentially update that uh, counter ID, wouldn't it? And then you wouldn't be able to save your blog post because it's now, I guess, stale. Yeah, um, that's a very real possibility. I'm not sure off the top of my head if counter caches touch that ID number for optimistic locking or not. Uh, I couldn't answer for sure, but that kind of scenario is totally possible, yeah. And a lot of that is sort of a, well, now it feels like my app is throwing errors that were never errors before, but what's actually happening is those errors were already happening, but now we're turning them into errors where somebody is getting a 500, something is going off to the logging service as opposed to we're just silently writing corrupt data to the database. Well, and the thing with the, uh, the optimistic locking too is you know that exception is raised not so that it can crash your, your page so much as that it gives you an opportunity to do something about it, right? That you can reload the record and merge the, the changes in and try saving again or, or something along those lines? Yeah, totally. There's a lot of strategies for it. It's A lot of that is based around you just have to know what's happening at the code level as opposed to it's totally invisible. So how do you turn that feature on? How do you uh, go into Rails or your database engine and say, hey, turn this on? Uh, optimistic locking, there's a, a really nice... Um, blog post from engine yard called a guide to optimistic locking. That's just about how you set it up. And it's just, um, you have a migration to add the column and then you add a little line in your model and pessimistic locking is you write code that would say something like blog post dot transaction do, and then you do the work of finding the record, updating it and saving it. And then you have your end. And it's when that end triggers that there's that possibility of either a, you know, a successful result or the exception of, hey, somebody tried to edit this while I did. And then you can rescue that and have all your logic. Mm. There's also kind of one more approach, and it's an approach that helps 
a lot of things, which is, um, uh, are a lot of these paths to corruption. And it's called event sourcing, which is really about changing the way you model things in your database. And if you think about like you have a bank account with a balance, if I have $100 in there, there isn't like a balance record or a balance column somewhere that has the number 100. My balance is actually the value of all of my credits and debits. And if something goes wrong, like the bank deposits a check, but they read a six as a five and did it wrong, they're not going to edit that record and edit my balance directly. They're going to create another new transaction on top. And so if we model our data differently in this way of it's not about what's the latest version of everything, it's what's the record of what happened, we end up with uh, a model where a lot of these things aren't possible. And I, I only really lean on it for like transactions involving money because that's where all my code gets super paranoid. It's kind of overkill for most other things. There's a database that works that way. I can't think of what it's called now. Anyone help me out? At uh, Datomic. I think it's, yeah, Datomic. That's what I'm thinking of. That's it exactly. Yeah, and in Datomic, everything is sort of both. Like you look at a user record and it is the current state of everything, but internally it stores everything as a record of updates. So like anytime you do a query, you're saying, I want to see the state of data state of the database as of this time. Yeah, it's kind of a neat idea. I, I've never done anything practical with it. But. Yeah, that's also kind of how Git works. So like we have checked out the latest version of every file, but we can always go back and look through all those previous versions and the changes as opposed to like a shared folder in uh, Samba or NFS or whatever the Apple file sharing thing is. That would be very much the way we model our data now of, eh, we just have these shared files and anybody can read and write to them at the same time. So are there other ways that this data can get corrupted? Because it sounds like this race condition setup, especially with jobs that are kind of running simultaneously, is one way that it can happen. But uh, I think I remember there were other examples in the talk. Uh, yeah, there were uh, a total of six ways, and only three of them were race conditions. Um, the next one is kind of um, super popular. A lot of folks know that if you have a validation, when you say, like, I validate my blog post title, uniqueness, colon, true, that might not actually work because the way Rails does is, is when you go to save that record, it does a select, and then it to say, does anybody out there have the title matching this? And if not, it goes, okay, I write. And in that little bit of time between when it does the select and when it writes back, there's that potential for a race condition again. And that one can be fixed with a uh, database constraint saying, no, this field actually has to be unique and MySQL or Postgres will actually really strictly enforce that for you. I love uh, I love that you, your, your solution for that is database constraints. Is that something that you reach for a lot? It is uh, the tool I love the most for this because it's the most robust and the most strict. And um, one of the things I talk about at the end of the talk is kind of, I think all six of these ways should be impossible. And almost all of them can be solved with database constraints or transactions, just kind of leaning on the database more. Because like SQL added database constraints in 1989. So we're at like 28 years old. And when, when a feature is old enough to like rent a car, it's generally pretty well understood. So um, I, I want to lean on that. And there was this um, 
early blog post uh, that DHH wrote in like 2005 called A Single Layer of Cleverness, which is a really thoughtful blog post about, well, I really only want one layer of my stack, you know, and I kind of imagine the database, the models, the controllers, the, the front end. I only want one layer of this to be clever and enforce my business rules. And he chose the model layer. And that's just kind of been how Rails has worked for the last dozen years. And unfortunately, I think that was the wrong decision. I think we should have chosen the database layer because it has a lot of excellent tools for preventing all of these kinds of mistakes. And we already are kind of split into two layers where like the model layer introspects on the database tables to figure out what attributes it has and what functions it should generate. I think the validation should work in the same way where we stop writing them in the models and we just write them in the database and then Rails creates the validations at the model layer for us from the database. I, I, totally I agree, agree with I agree with that wholeheartedly. I remember when when that blog post was was published, I was still working as a DBA at my day job and I was just sitting there shaking my head going, I agree with everything that, that he has said about software development until this blog post and I couldn't disagree with it more. Uh, and I've I've had myself so many arguments with other developers who don't they don't want to touch the database. They don't they, they want to do it all in their application because of that single source of truth. And there are a lot of people that, that feel that way. And I I think things like Rails uh having that uh partial updates thing as a feature is one of those things that you don't you don't really understand if you don't really understand the database. And it seems like a lot of these issues that y- you talk about are a result of kind of not really understanding what's happening at the database layer. Yeah, I usually build my validations in both the database and on the models. That way I can leverage uh, client-side validation so you don't have to, uh, so you can give the user real-time feedback on data that's maybe not unique or required value or whatever. I think that's really important because one of the situations I, I've run into as I as I dabble with uh, Elixir and Phoenix is that they their uniqueness constraint does use the database. And one thing I found is that um, if I'm doing like a user sign up and I want a uniqueness uh, on the username, for example, what I end up seeing is that the user will fill in all the fields and then they'll hit submit and they'll get a bunch of errors back about their data but they won't get the error about the unique username until they fix all their other errors and they submit again and now they see that their username isn't unique because it has to go to the database to do all those kinds of things instead of uh, being able to do it at the application layer. And so it, it does kind of help, uh, as you say, Dave, to do them kind of in both places just to present a better user interface. I used to work really closely with, um, with the DBA at one of my past jobs and he said something that I thought was pretty interesting and it stuck with me and he said, if it can be constrained, then constrain it at the database level, that is. And so now, like, very rarely will I create a migration in Rails and then just run it as is. I, I'll usually go in and modify it to add as many constraints as I possibly can. I can't tell you how much this discussion warms my heart because I, I have also <laughs> had the argument of, like, no, it really needs to be the database. So I'm really I'm, I'm thrilled so many folks agree. And yeah, I know some people, though, that they get to this and then they're like, yeah, but then I get all these errors back in Active Record because the database won't cooperate. Yeah. And don't forget that you can add foreign keys into your migrations, you know, to add just some extra constraints. You know, that's something that I've looked at several applications and I don't see foreign keys used that much in MySQL and stuff. 
Well, yeah, you have to remember that they, they weren't a first-class citizen in Rails until, was it Rails 4? So, you know, a lot yeah, of people, so. a lot of people, you know, yeah. a lot of people who have got applications that started on Rails 2 and whatever, they're not, they're not too keen on going back and adding them in and then watching everything break. Uh, <laughs> that's you know, kind of what I've seen. What I've seen. Like, it's like, I mean, myself included, I'm not, that's, that's not a priority for me on a working application to go back and add those in. But, uh, you know, on a, on a new application, now that I know that Rails fully supports them, I, I fully embrace them on everything I'm working on. You know, I yeah, wonder if there are people listening who are, are hearing us talk about these database constraints and they're not super sure what exactly we're talking about. might be good just to, like, touch on those. Like, what exactly is a foreign key constraint and what is a uniqueness constraint? And if there's any other kind of constraints you guys typically use besides those ones. Well, everybody uses some of them because we have stuff like we say that a varchar field can only be 140 characters long because we're storing tweets in it or something. And that's an example of a database constraint where we're saying, yeah, this field can only be so big. So every database constraint is just a rule our data has to follow every time it's inserted or updated. And Rails has really good support for database level uniqueness constraints and foreign key constraints of saying, if I have a user and they have a group ID column one, two, three, there had better be an entry in the group table with the ID one, two, three. Because one of the ways I found of, of validation uh, corruption was if you go and delete group one, two, three, all of a sudden that user has a pointer just hanging out saying, oh yeah, I'm in group one, two, three. And everything keeps chugging along until some random page says, okay, give me the current user's group and then give me the name of that group. And then it blows up with a, an error. And you're like, wait, what just happened? I just pulled this data out of the database. And so uh, database constraints are just a way of saying at a fundamental level in our database, these are the strict business rules that everything's got to obey. And it's totally possible to write um, arbitrary database constraints of, you know, uh, the title can't use the letter E. Every database has a little programming engine for doing that kind of stuff. Then how do you reflect that into the model so that it doesn't, you know, complain? Because otherwise you're just going to get errors back from the database. And it's, I mean, this is where I see people get frustrated is because, yeah, then the database engine's not cooperating with the model, so to speak. And, uh, you know, so they get some error back that they're not entirely sure how to solve. Yeah, it's sort of like when the uh, the car's check engine light is on. It's like, well, I don't want to go to the dealership because it feels fine. There's just that little noise. It doesn't really matter. Everything is fine. And then <laughs> you sort of wonder, like, why you're on the side of the highway with smoke coming out of the hood a month later. And in that same way, like, it, it's it sucks to have to deal with these and to have to be <clears throat> rigorous about these. But as soon as you start climbing over, like, hundreds of thousands, millions of records, you know, a one in a million thing starts happening every day. And for the the question of how do we reflect these up into the models? Um, so active record uses a, a feature in SQL called describe where it just says, Hey, tell me what the tables are and tell me what the columns are. are there. And so I'll make attributes for them and it can recognize a lot of the constraints and say like, Oh, I see you have a uniqueness constraint. So I could just, create a validation for that where effectively there's a unique colon true on that. And then for the other ones, it could at least, you know, for that jokey, you can't use the letter E, it would at least go like, hey, there's a constraint here and you wrote code for it, but I have no idea what that does. So 
I'm just going to throw my hands up and be like, hey, you have to write the Ruby version of this constraint so that I have one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like Rails comes pretty close to being able to, to pick out the constraints from the database, like you said. Uh, but there's just that, that little disconnect that, that uh, is going to frustrate a lot of, u- lot of uh, not users, but developers. And uh, it seems like Rails could, like, it could still be the source of knowledge if there was a way to convert a Ruby definition of a constraint into, uh, you know, that detect the letter E constraint that could then be loaded in the database. Maybe there's something out there that does that, but uh, until there is, it seems like you do kind of just have to bite the bullet and, and accept the fact that you got to have, have, have truth in multiple places. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like the old cranky developer, but it is one of those things where these things have been around in databases for a long time, and all the other programming languages take advantage of them because they solve known problems. Right. And so, kind of doing an end run around them seems like a, a bit of a pointless effort. You're eventually going to have data you're going to stare at and go, "I don't understand what's happening," um, and and a lot of that is going to be. Somehow, dirty, dirty data happened. If you, if, if for, for the Ruby developers out there, take a look at what the, what some of the things on the issue tracker for the Ecto, uh, stuff in Elixir is. Ecto is their, 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 uh, database library for mapping things into, uh, Elixir applications. And a lot of the discussion you'll see in the historical discussion on the tickets is, here are some database things that bit us in the butt when it came to Rails applications, and here's why we're making these design decisions about this package now. Uh, whether you agree with them or not, it's a fascinating uh, bit of history to understand the kinds of large-scale problems that the developers who were doing Rails applications saw, and, uh, and they've, they've sort of learned that, yeah, we're, we're going to lean harder on the database. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you, and on Hired you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what, what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash RubyRogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash RubyRogues. So are there other areas that people fall into these traps with? I mean, you know, you did the partial rights. I think we've talked about uniqueness some. And then we talked uh, about orphan records. Yeah, there's there's three others I saw. Uh, 
one of the really frustrating ones because the if you're using something like uh, bug snag and catching exceptions, you get like nonsense data in your log is um, aggregates where if you imagine something like a, a shopping cart model for a user buying stuff online and it has a before save that says like, okay, the, the total cost of the shopping cart is equal to the sum of the cost of all the line items. And then, you know, you write the callbacks in after in um, line items after save and after destroy and stuff that says, okay, go touch the shopping carts field and make it recalculate. The problem is though, when we load these things back out of the database, rail, you know, shopping cart is an aggregate. It's an object composed of multiple objects and without all of the objects, it's not a really a coherent thing. And rails with its lazy loading of many relationships, um, makes it impossible or at least a little tricky to actually enforce that an aggregate object is correctly composed. So going back to the shopping cart example, if you pull a shopping cart out of the database and you say, okay, what's your total? It's just going to read that field and it'll be like, yeah, that's a hundred bucks. But then if you say, okay, now let me access the line items. It's only when that next line of code runs that Rails is actually going to load the line items out of the database. And then, oh, look, you know, there's that potential for a race condition where, the shopping cart changed between when you read the cart and when you read the line items. And so then you can look at it and be like, oh, what is the cost, the so total sum of all the line items? And then you get a different number, like $80. And when you see this kind of thing in a traceback, the first time I saw it, I was like, that's not possible. And, and the worst thing about race conditions is by the time that you are investigating this a couple hours or a couple of days later, the, the data that led to this is gone. And so like in the shopping cart, it would be like, oh, yeah, I blew up because I had this total of $100. And I'd go look in the database and be like, no, it's 80 and everything adds up correctly. Why are you wigging out? So so how do you uh, how do you address that? Like uh, given given you you've identified the problem, how do you prevent that from happening? Uh, well, you can do the pessimistic locking um, like we mentioned earlier, and it's just when you load the shopping cart out of the database, you wrap everything up in a transaction so that nobody else could write to the database between when you load the shopping cart and the line items. And that's, you know, there's some performance implications if there's high scale, but for most apps, that's fine. But the other thing you want to do is just use um, eager load. Like everybody knows about includes or preload for saying, yeah, every time I get this, I want to avoid the one plus N problem where like, I load the shopping cart and then I loop over the line items. And so I generate one single query for every line item. Um, and for no particular reason, Rails has three ways of doing that kind of preloading. There's preloading, includes, and eager load. And includes sometimes uses preload. So my rule of thumb is just use eager load everywhere, all the place. If you have includes or preload someplace, you sort of have a bug waiting to happen. Uh, one other thing that fascinates me about issues like this is um, the troubleshooting side of it. Uh, you talked about how usually when you notice this, it's you know a few days later and the data that led to it is long gone. So what are some techniques you use to, to zero in on something like this? Uh, my general strategy is to reach up and grab large chunks of my hair and pull them off of the top of my head in frustration. <laughs> Does that work? So how would Chuck solve a problem like this? Yeah, Chuck with no hair, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe nose hair. I don't know. So, uh, you know, I, I joke, but there aren't 
great tools. It was just a lot of, it wasn't until that exercise with the coupons where I fixed it and I was just like, yeah, somebody logged in and tinkered with this. That's fine. And then two months later it happened again. And I was like, I fixed this. What happened? And the only way I found these was just to think back over all of my bugs and be like, what's actually happening? What weird circumstance could lead to this? And I I wish I had a better technique, but all I did was just kind of like sit in my chair and stare at the screen and, and think deeply about what was actually happening every step of the way. And if I could kind of, you know, I could play computer and draw out like, what's the state of memory? What's the state of database? And then every line on my little table would be another line of code is executed. And now one of them has changed and the other hasn't. Oh, wait a minute. There's a little time in between. So it was just this kind of painstaking reflective work and beating my head on the desk until I started to see what must be happening. And then once I got it, I was like, oh, oh, okay. Can I reproduce it? And if you know what you're looking for, yeah, you know, I can write a script that hammers the database a thousand times and I write a second one. And then all of a sudden the race conditions start happening all the time. And I'm like, okay, I really found it. It it warms my heart to hear you describe the process like that, because I've been in that exact seat as well, almost almost exactly like you describe. And and yeah, my my solution, too, is just to sit back and and think for a while about it. It seems like to approach something like this, you you have to learn to adopt a a mindset of concurrency or, you know, the, to, to think in terms of multiple processes working simultaneously. And uh, that, I think that's tricky for new, new developers, especially. Yeah. And I would say one of the only reasons I caught all of these was um, for almost all of that five years, I was working part-time three days a week. So I would be three on and four off. And so I had a lot of like extra shower time or, just, you know, I would, instead of taking the bus, the four or five miles home from work, I would just walk it and I would have a lot of time to sit and turn things over in my head. Cause there's no way you're going to spot one of these like really subtle, rare, frustrating bugs. If you're in an open plan office and you're getting in, you know, interrupted by a game of Thrones discussion every 15, 20 minutes, it's just gotta be that, that quiet reflective time. That's brilliant. So one of the other things that you have in here, and I can see this as people uh, try to work around some of these issues, uh, your sixth point is the bypassed validations. And I can see people, why isn't, why won't it, why won't it save, why, what? And then they finally just, you know, save bang and, you know, just kind of ram it in. Um, yeah, actually, uh, so everybody knows, like, don't do that. And everybody knows like, don't run rails DB console in prod and edit things. And what we mean when we say don't do that is actually like do it, but be scared of what you're doing and do it really, really infrequently, which is like, that's okay. Every, every process has its edge conditions and needs human touches. But even if you don't do like save validate false, it is totally easy to bypass your validations because we have methods on models like update and update all. And, uh, can anybody on the panel name like which one of those just skips all your validations? Update all. Yep. Yeah. And then there's update attribute and update attributes. And you might think like, oh, okay, the plural one is going to skip it. But in this case, the singular update attribute skips them. Mm-hmm. And then there's update column versus update columns. And both of them just skip validations. And so there's all these methods that are hanging out 
that Rails uses internally but are exposed for historical reasons or just because we didn't realize what a, a set of landmines they were and totally innocuous looking code that uh, increments or decrements or touches a record or toggles or updates its attribute can just skip over your validations. And it's not just, it's not, not all of them are, they skip validations for the one field they touch. They skip all of your model validations. Pardon me while I assume the fetal position. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm crying also. You know, it, it has frustrated me in the past, the inconsistency with uh, the model validations on the Rails um, update methods. And I love that you've enumerated so many of those because uh, it's so true. As a developer, you need to update something, and, and suddenly there's this mental overhead of, wait a minute, is this the one that skips the validations? Do I care? Um, and it takes you out of the flow. And, yeah, I've been bitten by that before. Yeah, and there's I can't memorize this kind of stuff. Um, so I, I made a cheat sheet, and we can put a link in the show notes, but literally I just printed it out and taped to the wall so that I could look next to me and be like, wait, can I use update all? No, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. And, like, the fix for this one, again, is, like, yeah, database constraints again, or if we want to be super radical and, like, you know, in the Oprah style, you get a breaking change, everyone gets a breaking change, we could move these into a module uh, called something like unsafe or dangerous. Um, over on the Bike Shed podcast, episode 40, they talked about, do we want to do something like this? And the answer was, like, yes, but it would be horrific amounts of pain for everybody, so no, as a practical matter. And and I think that's the right decision, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at this point, it's just an architectural decision that Rails made that's pretty fundamental. And, uh, I mean, you're right. The the ultimate solution, in quotes, is database constraints to to push that to the the single place that everything is passing through. Yeah, because so many of these, like, especially when I had just seen the first one, I was like, oh, okay, well, I won't do that anymore, and that'll be fine. But humans are really terrible at rules like just don't do that. <laughs> I mean, we still have problems with... Uh, uh, there's a wonderful book called The Checklist Manifesto um, that's just about we totally know how to give somebody a um, an IV when they're in the hospital so that we can do surgery on them, and we can do that without giving them any kind of infection. And there's just a series of steps that you follow for you know, washing your hands, making sure the area is sterile, all that kind of stuff. And it was still like hospital staff infections. The tech term is nosocomic infections, infections you get in the hospital when you go there for something else. They still kill a lot of people. And at some hospitals, it was like, yeah, 30% of people get these central line infections when the number should be zero. Like there's no reason for it not to be zero, except that humans are really bad at following like the, you just have to do it every time. Because we always end up feeling like, oh yeah, we can kind of like, I can fudge it this once. It's all right. I can leave the check engine light another week. You've been watching me with my check engine light, haven't you? <laughs> so are you putting so tape I, over I, the check engine light isn't the proper fix? I have an engine. I just clear, or I have an app on my phone and a little thing that plugs into my car, and I just clear the codes. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I like monkey patching the light. That's a nice, very ruby way of doing it. <laughs> there you go. And uh, the other way that's that's very kind of just don't do that. The the last way that I saw folks ending up with corrupt data in their database was if you ever edit a validation, it doesn't automatically run on all of your old code. So like if we had that headline and it could be 
uh, 300 characters long and we chop it down to Twitter size and say, oh, it'll be 140 now. Nothing in Rails, nothing in the migration ever forces you to look at your data and be like, do we have any long ones that we just chopped off? Like, did we just chop a bunch of headlines in the middle of the word? Like, nothing knows. And if we tweak any of these other more complex, more subtle validations, nothing ever knows. And there's no... Like, I wish I could offer a fix for that one that's not just don't do that, but we've got to be super paranoid about any code that edits a validation is potentially creating invalid records in our database just because we've changed the definition of what valid means. Yeah, I've, I've actually run into that in, in, in some applications. I've, you get you get people who can no longer save, they, they can't update their own records anymore because the programmers have changed the validation rules and now the records that they just, they just open that up to edit one diff, you know, edit one field or edit something else and now the record isn't valid somehow. I've seen that happen before and that was prior to times when there was just the partial updates. Um, but it is something to think about that it's, uh, the rule that I always had when I, where I had my first job, it stems from my first job was that you as a programmer, you don't own the data that's the data from your customers and you have to you have to guard that data and keep it safe um and and avoid doing things that corrupt it delete it alter it uh, or or frustrate them with their data yeah that's that's totally true and that's the that's the big one of just it's so easy to overlook or to feel like we can get away with but often we can't That's kind of depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, still men are mortal, and if you're religious, maybe we live in a failed world, and that's just how things go. <laughs> the good news is we can uh, start looking more at database constraints and solve some of these, right? Yeah, um, and there's sort of a... I, I started working on mitigating these. Um, I, I started a gem I called Invalidator that would look at your models and catch like, oh, does this validation touch two fields or do we have that potential for orphan records because the user references the group, but the group doesn't have some kind of like dependent destroy or other check to make sure that we don't leave a hanging out record. And um, the gem could work in a couple ways of just like, look at your models and catch these things. And the second thing is like, well, if we can look at this and say like, oh, it validates the length is only 140 characters. I can turn that around into a query and say, if I look in the database, are there any elements that are more than 140 characters right now before I push this migration and deploy it? And then uh, last was just the total brute force of like clone production to another box and loop over every database table and run dot valid on every single record, which <laughs> is like a, it, it's kind of tedious and awful, but if we are, having that single layer of cleverness be our model layer, that's the only way to check. Yeah, nuke it from orbit, right? Yeah. Way to be sure. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, I really like the idea of having a gem that is, what am I trying to say? That you, you use to check your code that doesn't necessarily run with your production code, but that you use to to it's like a meta validator, right? Um, I, th I think that's a useful tool to have in a toolbox. So I started writing it and I disagree. I kind of hate that I had to write it 
Cause I think <laughs> none of these things should be possible. Like I was angry every time I was writing this code and I talk about it in the past tense, not because it's out there and released, but because I stopped rails consulting. And so I didn't have that itch to scratch anymore. So I, I, I dropped on it, but if anybody wants to pick up that idea and run with it, please do. Um, I would rather see a more fundamental fix, like moving validations to base on database constraints, which we talked to death or just straight up prohibiting invalid models because there's the whole another related area that when I saw these, I realized I was seeing in the app layer where like, if you have a controller, that blog post controller, and it says like, oh, post is find one, two, three, and we find it out of the database. And then you say post.update attributes with the user params. Anything that every piece of code that can be called between when that post is updated and when that post is saved and validations run has to deal with a possibly invalid model. And we see this kind of stuff, this this scary land of uncertainty is what I call it in the middle because it frustrates the hell out of me where I'm like, oh, this code looks totally reasonable, but I should ask Suzanne about whether the shopping cart can do this because she knows the code better than I do. And I show it to her and she's like, oh yeah, you might not have a tax rate there and this other thing will look like it's correct, but it'll calculate your tax rate wrong based on the default country. And there's just sort of like no way to know that because we have these partially valid objects that we're shipping around. And then we have code that some of it can deal with it. Or you'll see like nil checks on a belongs to that's required. Like you should never have to have a uh, user must have a group. And then I still check user.groupid.nil. But as long as I'm updating records in a way that makes them invalid and then checks them later, there's this scary land of uncertainty where stuff could be broken. And I don't know how to write reliable code when I can't even trust that my own objects and my own data are are valid and correct. That's what validity is for. Well, someday somebody will solve this, right? <laughs> <laughs> Peter, have you ever come into a project that's like an old legacy project and it's really lacking database constraints and maybe the database is um, kind of a mess data integrity wise. And I'm curious how, if, if you've encountered that situation, how you've approached that. Uh, I absolutely have. And the first approach I'll do is make sure that some kind of exception monitoring is in place to catch that scenario of, you know, data was invalid and somebody edited another field and couldn't save it back because now they're getting surprising validations. I need to catch a 500 on that so that I know it. And um, that's just kind of the, the floor. And the next thing is um, kind of auditing these unsafe practices and looking like, are there validations at all in the model? Are they reasonable? Are they um, appropriate for the business domain? And this is where legacy code becomes, you know, like all the frustrations of legacy code is decisions were made. And now years removed later, you have no idea why they were made. And so you don't know, like, is this happenstance or is this a deliberate piece of the design? And you have to do like this archaeology of spelunking the code history and asking the customer really weird questions like, are all regions sites or are all sites regions or both or neither? And, you know, your user looks at you like, you are a Martian. <laughs> Yeah, that can be really tough when you have old data that's that's not valid in that exact case, like you said, where you, you pull a record out of the database and you edit it and you save it 
And in the past, it would have been fine because they didn't have the constraints in place that they that they should have. But now it's not valid, and they and they can't continue to to use it as before. Um, and there's there's not a whole heck of a lot of ways around that, except like you said, put that exception monitoring in place. So when that does happen, you you know about it and can address it, or you just have to take a really gradual approach and and just live with the fact for a while that you have bad data and, and the situation isn't improving in that respect anytime soon. Yeah. And a lot of being a consultant was making that not as the programmer, but as the uh, business kind of person and saying like, as the programmer, I want every single record to be perfect all of the time and every line of code to be a perfect crystal and jewel. But then on the other hand, like most of the time that's gold plating and if an app only has a few tens or hundreds of thousands of records and it doesn't have something like a sidekick job that hits every record in the database every night, probably none of the race conditions will matter to you. And if they do, it'll be like a once every two or three years kind of thing. You can totally, it is way cheaper to fix that manually than it is to spend dozens of hours rigorously doing everything. And all of these, like, you know, there's a half a dozen ways that data becomes invalid. It's not like every rails app is on fire all of the time. It's, you know, these are fairly uncommon things, but if they bite you, they will really bite you and you'll have no idea what happens and you'll just think it was a one-off. You know, another technique I've seen for uh, dealing with the, the situation where a validation has changed or has been added um, is where you, you introduce a kind of gatekeeper that, um, checks in real time whether a record matches the new validation and uses uh, some specific logic that you decide at the time you apply or change the validation to, to fix the record. Uh, a case being like uh, maybe maybe your email, you know, what was a valid email address um, was very permissive before and now you've you've made it more strict. And so you make it so that when a, a record is read from the database, you you check to see, okay, does it still have a valid email address? And if it doesn't, then you have some logic that massages it into a valid email address or raises an exception or whatever. Um, it's pretty fiddly, it's, and it uglifies the code quite a bit. Um, but I found, you know, that can, that can be one way to help deal with the uncertainty of we need to change this logic. We can't afford to iterate over 2 billion records. Uh, what do we do? Any other aspects of this that we should dig into before we go to picks? Uh, I've kind of said all that I have to say on the topic, aside from, you know, cursing. But uh, <laughs> if anybody's got questions, I'm happy to dig in. Do you ever have issues crop up in production that you don't see in development? Do you even know how your app is performing in production? Performance, errors, and analytics to figure out where your app is bogging down are important to keep an eye on. You could try one of those error tracking apps, but why not use a tool that does it all? Try Datadog. Datadog tracks performance, collects data on your errors, and provides you with the information you need to improve your user's experience and fix bugs without having to log into the production server and dig through the logs. What if my app spans across multiple servers and services, you ask? Datadog seamlessly collects metrics from every corner of your application, including services like Amazon AWS and systems like Redis. 
So whether you want a clear view into your application's performance, need to be notified of new errors, or to keep track of your application across various services you use, use Datadog. If you go to devchat.tv Datadog and start a free trial, they'll send you a free Datadog t-shirt. All right, I'm going to take the uh, slight pause here as uh, nobody has anything else. So we'll go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Dave, do you want to start us with picks? Yeah, sure. Uh, I just picked up a Rode Podcaster Studio Worm for my microphone, and I absolutely love it. Uh, it's really nice and slick, and I can actually adjust my mic without you know sending all kinds of horrible, distorted spring feedback into the mic. So um, I think that's my only pick. Awesome. Jason, what are your picks? I have two picks. One is a book that I just got and just started reading. It's called Database Design for Mere Mortals. I think I heard about the book like 10 years ago, but I finally got it, and it seems pretty good so far. Um, The other pick of mine is a podcast I've been listening to called Indie Hackers, which if you haven't heard of it, it's basically um, developers and non-developers too who have started side projects and made money off of them and turned them into uh, full-time living, which is exactly what I'm trying to do. So that podcast is very interesting to me. It's called Indie Hackers. That's all for me. Cool. Jameis, what are your picks? Um, I uh, recently started reading a book called Bad Choices by Ali Al-Masawi. He wrote um, a book called Bad Arguments, which was pretty popular. Um, uh, it's a view into how algorithms can uh, be used in our daily lives, basically how we approach problem solving. And it's it's kind of intended as an introduction to computer science for non-computer scientists. But I, I appreciate his insights into these different algorithms. Like he, he touches on like quicksort and um, uh, divide and conquer and, you know, these different techniques that we as programmers take advantage of every day and uh, uh, he's got some great illustrations it's it's really fun and one caveat he, he uh, does mention my maze book is one of his, his resources in the back but uh, it's it's a great book despite that um, and also I have to call out the sue the t-rex twitter account which is absolutely fantastic it has nothing to do with computer science but it's uh, the twitter account for the sue T-Rex skeleton at the Chicago Museum of Natural History, and it's a it's a delightful account to follow. Brian, what are your picks? Uh, I have just one pick this week, and it's uh, a website called Teachable, uh, Teachable.com. And if you're interested in setting up your own uh, online courses and charging money for them, Teachable offers you a platform to do that, um, and you can actually set up a, clerk, a course for free. Uh, to to get started and uh, it's it's nice because it, it gives you this gives you this nice platform and uh, all you have to provide is the content and you know that is the tricky part right but this is still a nice way if you already have some content or some things you wanna uh, you wanna share with people and you'd like to uh, like to actually have registration and, and take people's money to start a course uh, this is a great platform to do that. Nice. I'm gonna jump in here with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is um, if you are a listener to the podcast. I have set up an audience survey. I've gotten a lot of great feedback so far. Um, definitely things I'm looking at uh, doing or doing differently. 
Um, go to devchat.tv slash survey and just fill it in. It gives us some demographic information, um, which helps plan the shows and helps uh, with sponsorships. And then it helps with a few other things as well. Um, but it also, it does give you a chance to give us feedback. So if you have thoughts on, you know, how the show could be better or things like that, that's a good place to do it. Um, and then I also am going to just shout out quickly. Um, this will probably come out about the same time that I start releasing the My Ruby Story podcast episodes. Um, the latest one that I recorded was with Jameis Buck. Um, but we, you know, I talked to Fabio Akita and uh, a bunch of other people that we've had on the show and trying to con- uh, capture their story. So um, if you're interested in that, it'll show up on this feed as well. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to be putting that out. So keep an eye out for those. Um, Peter, what are your picks? Uh, I've got two. The first one is a board game or a card game called sushi go party. And if you're not super into board games and the last one you played was monopoly, it's a, it's both a great way to get started. And if you like one, it's a really nice light filler game and it's super cute. Uh, you just have to play it before dinner because otherwise you're having sushi for dinner because everyone will be hungry. Uh, and the other one is uh, a little self-plug. I made an art project with Ruby called the Well-Sorted Version that lives at wellsortedversion.com. And it's just a... Uh, actually, the less I say about the better, so I'll just say please check it out. And uh, thanks so much for having me on the show because I've been a longtime fan. If anybody wants to drop me a line, my email is peter at revenue.systems. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, we will catch you all next week. Bye, guys. See you later. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.